Take your Bibles tonight and turn to Matthew chapter 1. We'll be there in a few moments. All right, go ahead and stand with me tonight. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, a very familiar Christmas text. And we'll begin our reading in verse number 18. And maybe the key thought tonight would be verse 23, but we will um, read this in context. This is one of the uh, Christmas story accounts. And verse number 1. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, in this manner. When, as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, not in the sermon tonight, but he's not yet formally married in the sense of physical relationships, which is important in the birth of Christ. Um, he was a spouse to Joseph before they came together. She was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. This was a perceived social scandal, and he didn't want to be a part of it. And then, of course, he halts because of what happens next. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David. That's also important to the story, because the Savior had to come from the lineage of David. Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth the Son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, Hebrew Yeshua, and the name means Savior, which is what goes on to be said, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord, by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And so, really, this whole text is prophetic in nature. Then Joseph, being raised from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew not her uh, till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he, of course, as he was commanded, called his name Jesus. Our Holy Father, I pray that, Lord, you would bless our time together tonight. And, Lord, it would be profitable in the sense that, Lord, we have looked into your word Lord, we are taking it to heart, and then, Lord, we are encouraged by it. And, Lord, where we can make application for it and appropriation in our lives. As we ask for your help with this, in, in, in your precious name, amen. All right, thank you so much for standing. I'm sure it's probably a topic of conversation for a lot of people. You know, uh, during this season, we talk a lot about Christmas. A lot is said about Christmas, and a lot is done in relationship to the idea of Christmas. Whatever else we think about the holiday, it certainly generates a lot of excitement. And of course, it does that here at Eastland as well. Uh, Christmas, the season, the holiday, um, you know, gets a lot of attention and it occupies a lot of our efforts. It's a special day. There's a lot of time, effort, and most of us would know dollars spent for this holiday as well. Uh, having 14 grandkids is a mixed blessing. And you have to be creative with that, you know. And then with the kids, I try not to forget my own kids, but um, they do come second to the grandkids. But anyway, you know, there's, there's dollars spent on that. And there's things that we do and the things that we host that I think are uh, helpful and good as well. We shop. Um, we attend parties, which we've done that as Sunday school classes. And I, I think that's really neat. We put up decorations. And I, I like Christmas decorations. They're bright and cheerful. I like the trees especially. 
Um, we get fellowships and have get-togethers. We visit relatives during the holidays. Um, we're doing that as a family. So for my 60th birthday, which is sort of associated with Christmas because my birthday's in December, um, all the kids are taking me to Branson this weekend. And they're going to buy me a huge gift. Right? Oh, no. Okay, I got that part wrong. But anyway, they're taking me to Branson this week, and we're going to spend a couple days together there with the family, and that's going to be exciting. I think we're going to go to Silver Dollar City and see the lights and the big trees there. So it'll be fun. Um, but, you know, there's a lot done here. We visit relatives. We, we make more preparations in this uh, short time span than maybe any other time. I know our calendars are all probably full, and that's, that's all good. Christmas is transcendent in the sense that it's not just something that we do here in America. The world, really, um, celebrates some concept of Christmas that transcends those barriers. But for all this, and with all the celebrations, I, I don't know that in the larger cultural world, um, people under, understand the meaning that we ascribe to Christmas. Okay? Christmas isn't a biblical idea. It's something that a season that's given where Christians have made a decision to celebrate the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ. And I, I, I feel like anymore a lot of that's lost on people. There's maybe some effort to preserve that, but some of that is lost. For a lot of people, it's a holiday, and, and that's okay. It's a holiday where there's time off from work, and there's an opportunity to be at home. Others, it's a time of fellowship with friends and family. Um, for us, even in part, it's a time of special music. And we sung special music tonight. And for our part, we look for something that has some doctrinal meaning to it. And so we sing those kind of songs. So others see Christmas as a season for giving and demonstrating a generous spirit. The things I just mentioned to you earlier tonight at the start, the things we've done, is part of the season and the spirit of Christmas. Many see it as an altruistic holiday of peace and goodwill and love. And certainly those who would practice Christianity would have those characteristics attributed to them and their behavior. Um, but I, I think, you know, what we want it to be is to have a center that is Christ. You know, it's, it's namesake. Uh, that Christmas is about the incarnation, the text that we just read from this evening. Christmas really is about an Emmanuel or a God with us. So this evening, I want to ask, really, and answer a simple question. And again, it's a question that I'm not sure that is fully uh, comprehended in this season. And the question is this. Christmas is the celebration that Jesus came, but then why did He come? What is the meaning of Christ's coming? What is this idea of an advent or the incarnation? Why did Jesus do this and why is it necessary? And I think we can find some answers, which would be plethora and many. We can find a few in our text this evening. And the first one that jumps out to me and is very obvious and evident is this, is that Jesus came to fulfill a plan of God. It's, it's about fulfillment. There was something in the mind and heart of God that was spoken through His prophets that He brought to accomplishment in great measure through the incarnation, the person, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we look at verse number 22, um, it says, Now all this was done, the story that we told that is Christmas, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken of the Lord 
by the prophets. And then he goes on to describe the virgin birth and the things associated with Christmas. The Bible is a book authored and inspired by God. Um, if I wrote a note to you and you received it in the mail, you would have received uh, a letter that was written and inspired in my heart and mind given to you. You would have my words, you would be holding them. Well, that's what we have in the Word of God. In the Bible, written by holy men of old, but the author, the heart and mind of it, is come from God through the penmanship of men, uh, through divine inspiration, and we hold in our hand a letter from God. And this letter has information of all sorts and doctrine and theology and truth and practical wisdom. And it also has, um, you know, some prophetic utterances in it. And so the Bible is a book authored, inspired by God, and it tells of God's purposes and plans for humanity and the world. In Genesis 1, from the very beginning, we are begun, the, the God begins to tell us what life's about. And there we read that in the beginning, God, so we've got to accept that, in the beginning, God, and what did God do? Well, God created. Now listen, that's a lot to absorb and take in. And it's something that this world, I mean, the Bible has a problem with the Bible in verse 1. From, from, starting from verse 1. Um, but we understand that that's a truth. That's a reality. That simple truth accepted changes everything for us as human beings. It tells us, first of all, who we are. Here's what I am. I am a creature made in the image of my Creator. I, I, I in a fallen nature, possess um, a likeness to God. I am valuable. I am, I am uh, loved. I, I am an object of His concern. Um, he is my creator. Therefore, I have obligation, duty, and responsibility to Him. And He loves me, and I have the opportunity to love Him back. It tells me who I am. It tells me where I'm from. Um, and it tells me to whom I belong. <clears throat> the idea of this idea, Genesis 1, gives me a God to serve, a reason to live, guidelines, principles, and truths to live by. For if God is, and we say He does because He said He does, then it's a self-evident truth in the world, um, in this revelation and the one we witness. Uh, well, if He is the Creator and there is a God, then I have responsibility, culpability, um, I have accountability, in other words, my life should be directed towards Him. And so the point and purpose of our lives should be to discover God, to know Him, to serve Him. As the book of Ecclesiastes states so eloquently, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole, the entirety, the encompassing duty of man. I believe this. I believe that if we did not exist in a fallen state, we could be forever fulfilled and occupied just discovering and trying to under, know God. It, it would just, it would completely fulfill us, occupy all of our attention. But in, in a fallen state, you know, God in this fallen heart and mind is obscured. I, I, I go after selfish pursuits, and that is not the direction of my life all too often. There is a great and terrible stumbling block that lies in the way of this mandate of Scripture, these obligations and culpability you have before God. And, and that stumbling block, of course, we know as sin. The book of Genesis describes the fall of man, this disintegration and dissolving 
of the intimate relationship between God and man that he intended in the creation. And we know that though fallen, we still were the objects of God's love. But man and his rebellion, which is very evident in the world today, uh, we walked away from God and his plan. And in mass, in society, in culture, and then in our own simple and unique ways, you know, we live independently of God. But despite that, why were we yet sinners? In the world's greatest act of benevolence, the world's greatest act of love and kindness, grace and mercy, God um, had a plan for us. He pursued us. He did not give up on us. He put a plan, a purpose in motion that would give us the opportunity to be reconciled with God. And the most underlying theme of Christmas, a purpose of God, is reconciliation. It's a Bible word that I think most of us kind of understand. For things to be reconciled means for things to be made right. In the relationship with God, He never moved. We certainly did. We had no ability to get back to Him in our own efforts. We need someone to help us to be reconciled, and that is part of Christmas, is to help us to be reconciled back to God. Well, that plan involving Christmas started all the way again back in the book of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And this is a prophetic description of a battle that Christ would have, and of course with Satan. And it was a speaking of the fourth of the coming of Christ, and of his, uh, his work. It's a reference to the incarnate Jesus Christ, His coming and fulfillment of His mission, of His purpose to rescue mankind. And this hope of mankind, of a Redeemer, of a Savior, someone who would be willing and then able uh, to take away men's sin has been a hope of the prophets and the Jewish people for a millennia. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, here was part of this promise to Israel. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, we talked about this last Wednesday night, Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. The prophecy continues to be spoken in the Word of God, uh, that one day the, the Savior would come, and we find the, fulfillment, the fulfilling history of that in part in the text we read tonight. Isaiah said um, an incarnate deity would come and you know, he would one day save his people from the sins and a future day the government would be on his shoulders and Matthew's rehearsing the fulfillment of that prophetic utterance in the text we read this evening. 4,000 years from Genesis the world waited for the Christ to come. Many, like Isaiah, said he would come, and Matthew says he has come. Matthew tells of the fulfillment of God's plan in these short verses. Now, there's, um, this is not my style. You know, I'm, I'm the guy who gives the big view looking down. But we could not just do sentences, but we could dissect parts of these sentences and have entire studies over them. Matthew 1 tells us of the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. And all that's in that, the King of the Jews. Uh, that He came at the appointed time. 
in history, that he was born in the appointed place, Bethlehem, that he was born of an appointed lineage um, through both Joseph and Mary, and that was the lineage of David. So many things coming together. He was born, and this is great theology, of the necessary and appointed means. The text tells us that he was conceived by the Holy Ghost. Wow. <laughs> you know, I, I wish I was smarter. I, I wish I was more than theolo theologian to somehow awe you into comprehending the miracle of God becoming flesh. It's incredible. Like, I don't, I don't, I, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's one of those things that's just impossible, I think, to maybe articulate and to grab our attention the way it should. I labored that at some point, even last week, you know, that God had to let go, step down in a way that's beyond our human comprehension. We struggle with becoming servants here at the church. But the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, um, the creator of everything that is, who has every planet and star named, came all the way down to a due loss of servant. Um, and he became a man, uh, conceived of God and a woman, fully God, fully man, minus our sin nature. What a wonder that would to behold. But, you know, as we study the life of Jesus, people still had fault with him, didn't they? And so even a perfect person would have difficulty in, in this world. Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And, and this is all just, you know, kind of, uh, the necessary requirements that Christ had to, to do to um, reconcile us. And so the word used in the text is redeem. Redemption is part of the process of reconciliation. God is here. I am here. God desires for me and his love to be reconciled back to him. But in, in order for that to happen, there's a price that's to be paid. That is sin's price. And, the, and sin's price being paid is called redemption. That was what the price that Jesus paid. And it's not just that he was willing to pay the price in love, but he had to be able to pay the price. He had to be one of us, yet without sin. And so, you know, the nativity is, is, is a sweet and, and, and comforting thought, but it was the necessary means for our salvation is what this text is telling us. It's part of God's plan. And so Jesus came to fulfill God's provision and plan. And we could talk much about that. But now moving to a more personal reason that he came, and the text makes this clear, Jesus came to offer you and me forgiveness. <laughs> Verse 21, he would save us from our sins. He would, he would forgive us, provide for the means of that. <clears throat> you and I need a lot of things in life, don't we? So if I ask you right now to take out a piece of paper, and start writing down the things that you need, <laughs> you know, our list um, would be interesting. And what we'd probably really be doing is writing down the things that we want. But once we kind of got our priorities straight, you know, what do we need? And what do we think we need? Well, you know, if, we, if we're just sort of fair with that question, what do we need? Well, we need food and water. 
right? We need shelter. And, do we, and the question I have is, don't we really need that? And the answer is, yes, we really do. We need protection. We need support. Um, we need, humanly speaking, to have some emotional needs met. We need to be loved. We need someone to love. We need attention. Um, but you know the greatest need we have? Is to be forgiven. Now, obviously I'm saying that theologically. Because if you had everything in the world, what good would it be to gain, to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? Right? The Bible makes, that's, a, that's a, an unequitable trade. So obviously, whatever else is true, the greatest need we have is to have God in Christ rather than everything in the world. So the greatest thing we have need of is, is forgiveness. But isn't that true here tonight too? How, how many of us would have relationships, have any kind of relationship minus forgiveness? Like, you know, I'm, I'm scanning the crowd, and most of you would be hard to live with. <laughs> right? Your spouse thinks so too. Fair? Well, how can you sit there and be together? What makes that possible? I'm looking at Mrs. Starr, and she loves her husband, Fred. And he's a really good man. Right, Mrs. Starr? Yeah, yeah right, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Brother Starr, how long have you all been married? 48 years. Is a marriage of 48 years possible minus forgiveness? No. Yeah. I mean, just think about that. You know, even when we back away a level, and you just get to know me as a friend, that's, that's a separated level. You know, and I probably, honestly, to be honest, I probably better behave in front of you than I am in front of Terry. Because I can take that for granted, right? But those of you who would know me at a closer level, I make all kinds of mistakes. I could offend you, on, not on purpose, but, you know, I, I can do it. Intentionally, unintentionally, maybe. You and I can't be friends if you're not willing to give me the gift of humanity. Right? You follow me? We couldn't come in here to the assembly of hundreds of people if we didn't have grace to get along. Like how many different ideas and thoughts and whatever are represented in this room? We might not always label as forgiveness, but grace. Like we stand in incredible need of this. And Jesus came to give it to us first. And I belabor that because what Jesus gives, he also expects. You know, one of the things that life has taught me is that we are sinners. We're selfish, arrogant, prideful, wanting our way. We see the worst in others in circumstances and situations. We hurt as much as help. We criticize often instead of being constructive. We complain, we gripe, we're discontent. We desire things we shouldn't. We're just, we discourage others. We're bitter. We're mean. And how in the world can we function that way minus forgiveness? And the, listen, we can't function that way with each other, much less a holy God who's of pure eyes and even look upon this iniquity that's ours. All, all of our righteousness is filthy rags, the Bible says. Quite frankly, in order for any relationship to exist, we need forgiveness more than we need anything else. We need forgiveness between dads and sons, mothers and daughters, people in an extended family. 
Wives and husbands have to forgive each other for marriages to work. And we have to forgive each other here in the church. <clears throat> it amazes me how easily you and I withhold from others what we so desperately need. Can you imagine, you know, if, uh, if it was in my power, I need air and I need to live, but if it was in my power to withhold it from you, how, how cruel would that be? Right? And if I had food and you didn't have any, how, how cruel would it be for me to hoard it and, and not give you any? I mean, we just think that's not being human. Well, it's also not Christian human to accept something and then not let that spill back over in someone else's life from you. To be a recipient of grace and to have none? To be the recipient of mercy and not give it? To be loved but not love? And, and here's where it gets gritty. To be forgiven and yet not extend it even when you're really, truly, genuinely hurt or bothered. Ephesians 4, 31, 32, and let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake, his example, hath forgiven you. Louis B. Smeeds said, forgiveness is God's, in, God's invention for coming to terms with the world in which people are unfair to each other and who hurt each other deeply. So he began by forgiving us, and he invites us all to forgive one another. This is a lot of what Christmas is about. Forgiveness. Why did Jesus come? To forgive people of their sins, and he invites us to do that as well. Think about God's forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is incredibly magnanimous, isn't it? 1 John 2.12, your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. God didn't forgive me based on my merit, but on Jesus' merit. Okay, so let's translate that in each other's relationship. I don't forgive you because you deserve it. I forgive you because God asked me to. And he gives me the capacity to love you despite injury. Colossians 2.13, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. You know, the, list, the laundry list we have against each other. But this one the God sees. And he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. He paid for it. Colossians 1.14, in whom, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption, sins paid for, through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Psalms 103.3, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. All of them. The Christmas story is the story of God's enduring love and His willingness to forgive our sins. Take your Bibles tonight and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a very familiar text. These are not maybe texts that we look at and say Christmas, 
but really this text isn't much different than Matthew 1 or Isaiah 9. It's more theologically spoken, but the idea is still there. To wit, verse 19, sorry, verse 19. Understand this, to wit, that God was in Christ. Okay, Christ is a word, uh, Messiah. It implied the God-man. You with me? This is the man who is deity. So, to wit, that God was in Christ. For what purpose? Reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespass unto them, um, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So we should be the agency of this as well. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, Christmas, the reason why Christ came, was it was a fulfillment of God's plan. And that plan involved the agency of Christ on our behalf. And then this is just the, the personal takeaway. So why did Christ come? Fulfill God's plan. To provide for forgiveness of sins. And then there's just something in these words, he came, this is personal to me, he came to us. He came to be a friend to us. There's just, there's just more than here than there's just, you know, great omnipotent sovereign God who did this majestic act that we desperately needed for our behalf and so they receive it. It's not like that. It's a judicial act given in the most incredibly benevolent way. It's a guy who just didn't pay for my ticket. He invited me over to dinner. Right? It's Emmanuel, God with us. And this is just incredibly personal uh, nature to this story. Verse 23, God with us. Though Jesus Christ is God, the creator of the world, King of kings, Lord of lords, he came to be with us. Not just for us. There's a difference. He came to be with us. He, he came to uh, live in our hearts. And, and there's, that's bigger than a metaphor. It's a reality. He's ever present. The Bible describes him as a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Jesus was described as the friend of sinners. He befriended those who no one else would befriend. He was a friend to the tax collectors, the publicans, and sinners. He became a help to um, th the worst of mankind to change them. He befriended the leper. He touched the untouchable. He, he befriended the blind, the lame, the halt. He ate with Zacchaeus. He forgave the prostitutes. The people he lived with, other people criticized, but he did so to be a friend and the kind of friend that helps. And so, you know, what's the, what's the part of the takeaway for Christmas? Christ came. Um, big holiday, lots happening, a lot of theology, a lot of truths, needs met. But he absolutely came with you in mind, personally. You know, he, he came for you, to be with you. And that's... 
wish there's a way to convey that. But he came to be with Butch and Josh and Jerry and Brian. Like, and that's what he desires. The, the point of reconciliation wasn't just to expunge a list of bad things in our life. It was, it was more than just the jurisprudence of it. The reconciliation is about relationship. So, someone does something for me, and I say thanks, and then go about my life. That's really not the aim of God here, because God still has more for us than just the forgiveness of sins. And so, the implication here when Jesus comes that implies a response on our part, that we need to meet Him too. The one who came for us, there's a relationship that needs to be reciprocated on our part for Him. So a lot to think about Christmas, the God who came for us. Let me ask you to stand tonight if you would.